Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our kinsman redeemer. Amen. We've been in the Gospel of Mark for quite some time, and now we come to what is really the climactic moment in his Gospel. See, Mark wrote his Gospel that we might know Jesus, so that we might understand who Jesus is and trust Him and follow Him. All throughout his Gospel, Mark has been talking about how Jesus is on the way. Well, now he has finally arrived at the destination. And Mark has been inviting us to become his disciples, to follow him in the way. Now we see where it leads. It leads, of course, to the cross. When Jesus dies at the cro- on the cross, we arrive at the moment in the gospel we've been waiting for. Everything in the gospel has been building up to this. This is the grand unveiling, the unveiling of God. The unveiling of the Son of God. Here, Mark shows us who Jesus is most definitively. And there are two events that go together that really form the climactic moment in Mark's Gospel. As Jesus dies, two things happen. The veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. And along with that, the Roman centurion confesses, surely this man was the Son of God. These two events go together, and together they really bring us to the heart of Mark's Gospel. So we want to talk about each one of these this morning. To see why the tearing of the veil in the temple was so important, we have to understand the purpose of the temple. Really, the the cross and the temple go together, and they explain one another, they interpret one another. The temple, of course, was God's designated dwelling place. The temple was heaven on earth. God gave to Israel blueprints for his house, a house they could build, a kind of earthly replica of his heavenly dwelling. Remember back in the book of Exodus, Moses had prayed to God. This is in Exodus 33. Moses had prayed to God, God, show me your glory. Moses wanted to behold God's glory. He wanted to see God and know God face to face because Moses knew this is what life is all about. This is what we're made for. We chase after all kinds of other things, but really our hearts will never be satisfied until we behold a vision of God in His glory. Our souls can be satisfied with nothing less than a vision of God's glory. And so Moses says to God, show me your glory. But God can only partially grant Moses' request at that stage in history. God says to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man can see my face and live. And so the Lord hides Moses in a rock as he passes by. He hides Moses for his own safety. And the rock acts as a kind of veil between the glory of God and Moses to protect Moses from God's radiant beauty. It would just be too much for Moses to take in. The temple then, of course, later in Israel's history serves the same purpose. On the one hand, it was a place for the Israelites and indeed the nations to go and meet with God. It was to be a house of prayer for all nations. It was a way for the people to come and get close to God's glory. But on the other hand, it also kept them at a distance. Again, for their own safety. And so the temple, yes, provided access 
but also exclusion. It reminded them they did not have full access. They were still excluded from the very heart of God's house, from the throne room. Indeed, I'll oversimplify here a bit, but you can think of it this way. The temple had three basic zones. Think of it geographically. There's the courtyard where regular Israelites can go and even the Gentiles can go and they can offer sacrifice. You've got the holy place where only the priests can go to do their priestly business. And then you have, in the heart of it all, the most holy place where God dwells enthroned between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. And only the high priest could go into the most holy place and then only one day a year to make atonement for himself and for the sins of the people. The holy place and the most holy place were separated from everything else by veils. Veils that as we read about this morning in Exodus 26 had cherubim embroidered into them. Scripture makes quite a, a point of this, that the veils had images or depictions of cherubim, these fierce, angelic creatures, guardians of God's throne. And of course, this goes back to Genesis chapter 3. Remember in Genesis when Adam and Eve sinned at the inner sanctuary, the most holy place, so to speak, where the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were found when they sinned by seizing what was forbidden to them, they were excluded. They were expelled from the Garden of Eden. And how did God keep them out? How did God keep anyone from re-invading, re-entering His sanctuary? How did God keep unauthorized persons from coming back into the Garden Sanctuary of Eden? He put cherubim there. Two cherubim with flaming swords. To show the only way back into God's presence will be through sword and fire. You've got to pass by the cherubim to come back into God's presence. Well, the temple was a kind of partial return to Eden. And that the, holy priest, the, the high priest could enter the most holy place one day a year. But he didn't get to stay there. He didn't get to dwell there. And for everyone else, the cherubim on the veils were reminders of their permanent exclusion. Those curtains said, keep out. No trespassing. They were there to keep sinners at a safe distance from God. To say, this is where God's glory dwells and you can't come here. If sinners were to get too near to God without authorization, they would be destroyed. This happens in the book of Leviticus to Aaron, the high priest. His sons offer strange fire in the holy place and God's fire comes out and consumes them. You can think of those veils as shields to protect the people from God. If there's one thing people today don't like the idea of, it's a God who judges a God that we might need to be protected from. But that's what those veils were there to do. You can think of them as firewalls or wrath walls to protect the people from God in His fearsome holiness. And so the temple shows the goal, the goal of it all, the, 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 the goal of human history and of human life is face-to-face -face fellowship with God. What is life all about? It's about beholding God's glory. That's what we were made for. That's what we were made to do, to behold God's glory and bask in His glory. The temple held this out as the point of it all, and yet the temple could not deliver this vision of God's glory. God remained hidden behind the veil. And the Israelites knew that if they were going to know God in fullness, either He would have to let them enter inside the veil for good to dwell there, 
or God himself would have to come out from behind the veil and show himself. Either they've got to come in or God's got to go out. But so long as, as, as neither of those happen, uh, our humanity was going to be frustrated. The purpose of it all would not come to fruition. So long as those veils were in place between them and God, they could not behold his glory. The temple, really, you could think of also as a model of creation, a kind of cosmic model, a symbol of the cosmos. And in this sense, we can understand the curtains as like the firmament. Go back to the creation week in Genesis chapter 1. On day 1, God makes the heaven and the earth. And there's heaven, and there's earth, and there's nothing said about any kind of barrier between them. It seems you can freely pass back and forth between heaven and earth. At that point, on day one of the creation week. In fact, light can shine out of heaven onto the earth. But on day two of the creation week, God separates heaven from earth. God creates what is called the firmament. And indeed, Isaiah 40 tells us that God spread out the heavens. He spread out this firmament like a curtain or a veil. In fact, again, if you go back to Exodus 26 where we have the description of the veil in the temple, we find it was the color blue, made to look like the sky. The ancient historian Josephus says that the veil pictured, quote, the whole panorama of the heavens. The veil shows heaven. It represents heaven. It represents the barrier between heaven and earth. But this is also interesting to note. It's interesting that throughout the creation week, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, again and again, God speaks and what he speaks happens and he declares what he has made through his word good. God speaks, it happens, he sees what he has made, he declares it good. But that declaration, God saw what he had made and it was good, that declaration is missing on day two. God does not declare this firmament on day two to be good. He does not declare this curtain or this veil, this barrier between heaven and earth good, which again indicates to you that God's final goal is to make heaven and earth one. That barrier, that curtain, that veil between heaven and earth was only intended to be temporary. God ultimately, his, his design is to bring heaven and earth together, to merge them into one dwelling place for God and his people, where God and his people can enjoy one another for all eternity. That's God's goal. For heaven and earth to face one another unveiled. But for now, day two shows us that veil will be where heaven and earth meet. That veil will separate and divide heaven from earth. And again, so long as God remains hidden behind the veil, God's throne room is inaccessible. The glory is hidden. God's gifts are kept in secret. And that is the case until... Until here in Mark 15, until Jesus dies on the cross. And then that veil in the temple symbolizing the heavenly firmament is torn. And Mark tells us this. It's ripped from top to bottom. This is not something men could have done. It's God's action. It's torn from heavenward down, from heaven down to earth. As if someone from above is reaching down to do the tearing. And if the veil is torn, that means what? That means God has now shown Himself. God has unveiled Himself. God will now put His glory on public display. 
But when the veil is torn, when God comes out from behind the veil, what does He look like? Here you have the centurion standing on Golgotha, east of the city, looking at Jesus being crucified and looking down into the temple in Jerusalem. And he sees the veil torn from top to bottom just as Jesus breathes out His last. What does it show us? When God comes out from behind the veil, when God puts His glory on public display, what does it look like? Well, the answer is right there hanging on the cross. When the curtain is torn and God is unveiled, we find a man dying on a cross. We find God's glory not between two cherubim, but between two thieves hanging on a tree. The glory of God is revealed in the cross. The cross is the unveiling of God. This is not just Mark's gospel. Just, this is all throughout the New Testament. John's gospel makes the same point. I'll just sketch this out for you so you can see it. John's gospel makes this same shocking point. John's gospel opens with the familiar prologue about the Word, the eternal Word of God. And the opening prologue of John's gospel says that the Word, that is the eternal Son, the Word was made flesh. That's Jesus, incarnation, the Son of God, now in human form. The Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. That's actually the word that John uses. The, the Word made flesh tabernacled among us. So Jesus Himself is the true tabernacle or the temple. So the Word was made flesh and tabernacled among us. And John says, we beheld His glory. But the question then is, when do we behold the glory of God in the Word made flesh. Well, later on in John chapter 1, Jesus tells His first disciples that they will see heaven open. That means they will see behind the veil. The, the, the curtain separating the heavens from the earth will be torn. He says they will see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Heaven's going to be open. They're going to see God's glory. But when in John's Gospel do we behold God's glory? Well, Jesus answers that question with several declarations just before He goes to the cross. He says things like this, Now the Son of Man is glorified. Now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. He prays, The hour has come, Father. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You. And of course, all of these references to glory refer to Jesus' death. That's the hour of His glory. That's when the glory is revealed. When He is lifted up on the cross, heaven is open and the glory shines out. The glory pours out. At the cross, the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son, that is to say, the glory of God, is revealed. At the cross, John is showing us God is unveiled and the glory shines out. See, when the curtain is open, when the curtain is torn, we don't find what we might have expected. Certainly the Jews didn't. Here they believe this was the whole purpose of their, of their temple and the whole purpose of their existence, that ultimately in the end they would get to behold God's glory. They would get to go inside the veil. It would all be open to them, the most holy place. But when it finally happens, they don't recognize it. 
The glory of God doesn't look like what they expected. Again, it's not between the two cherubim. God's glory is revealed between two thieves as Jesus suffers and dies on the cross. This is God's beauty. The ugliness of the cross reveals the beauty of God. The foolishness of the cross reveals the wisdom of God. The weakness of the cross reveals the power of God. Here on the cross, the radiance of all God's perfections are on display. Here we see the face of God. We see the face of God in the cross of Jesus. The cross is... The unveiling of God. The cross is the fullest, truest, and deepest revelation we have of the very heart and character of God. Jesus' death opens the most holy place. Jesus' death reveals God in His glory. What does God's glory look like? Self-giving love. Sacrificial love. This is the glory of God. We know this from Mark's Gospel, I think, because of what happens next. As soon as Jesus dies, the veil is torn. And the Roman centurion standing guard at the cross says, Surely this man was the Son of God. When he sees all these things happen, when he sees the way Jesus died, he makes this confession. And the centurion's confession here, Surely this man was the Son of God. This is the other climactic moment in Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel has been driving at this as well, that we would all make this confession. This is really amazing. Mark's whole gospel has been building to this point. Mark wants us all to make the same confession the centurion makes here. To say the same thing about Jesus the centurion says because it's the same thing God himself says about Jesus. See, Mark wants us to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, as the King, as the Messiah, as the eternal God in human flesh giving himself in sacrificial love for the salvation of his people. Giving himself in this way that we might see his glory and even share in his glory. Mark's gospel is punctuated at key points with declarations that Jesus is God's son. So much of the gospel is taken up with debates and conversations about Jesus' identity. We've seen that as we've made our way through Mark's Gospel. And there are lots of people, like say Peter and Mark chapter 8, who get kind of close to the truth. They partially see the truth, but they don't fully get it. But Mark tells us in different ways throughout the Gospel what the full confession of Jesus' identity should look like. And this is it, that we would see and confess Jesus as God's Son. And so this declaration about Jesus' identity pops up at key points in the Gospel. You've got it at the introduction of the Gospel, and then at several points along the way in the story itself. The book opens in chapter 1 with this. Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark tells us right out of the gate, this is who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. Mark is telling the story of God's Son. All that Jesus will say and do, he will say and do as the Son of God. This is the good news about God's Son. And then a few verses later in Mark chapter 1, at Jesus' baptism, what happens? The heavens are torn open. The sky is ripped open. The same word is used there in Mark 1 for the sky being torn open that is used in Mark 15 for the tearing of the veil in the temple. Now, do you think that's any coincidence? No, that parallelism is there by design. We're to see that the temple curtain and the, and the heavenly firmament 
really represent the same thing. And they're both being torn open through the ministry of Jesus. What happens at his baptism foreshadows and points to what he will fulfill in his cross. And so you've got the same word. The sky is torn open, pointing to the temple being torn open and the glory of God being unveiled. But that's not all. When the sky is ripped open in Mark chapter 1 at his baptism, it says the heavens were torn open and a voice spoke from heaven, the voice of the Father, You are my beloved Son in whom I delight. Jesus is declared at his baptism to be the Son of God, the Son of the Father. Then at his transfiguration a little bit later, you've got the same thing. There at the transfiguration, Jesus is radiating and shining with a heavenly light. He's shining with this glorious, radiant light. And again, a voice speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son. Hear Him. So again, at the transfiguration on the mountain, the Father declares Jesus' sonship. The demons recognize Jesus as God's Son. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus performs an exorcism. In fact, it's very interesting. It's a legion of demons. This man's inhabited with a legion of demons. Later on, we've got a centurion who would have been a member of a legion of Roman soldiers at the foot of the cross. But there in Mark 5, you've got a legion of demons. And as Jesus is preparing to perform the exorcism to cast the demons away, the demons say to him, What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God, the demons make the confession that Jesus is the Son of God. So you've got this declaration, Jesus is God's Son, in the opening line of the Gospel. You've got it at the baptism. You've got it at the transfiguration. You've got it by the demons at an exorcism. But then we come to the Roman centurion. This Gentile soldier, pagan soldier, he is the first human in the Gospel to recognize Jesus as God's Son. Oh, other humans make confessions about Jesus that are great, that come close to the truth, but nobody nails it until the centurion. He is the first human in the Gospel to recognize Jesus as the Son of God. Mark's whole purpose in writing this Gospel from the beginning has been to show us that Jesus is the Son of God. With the centurion's confession, that purpose is fulfilled. Because if the centurion sees it, others are going to see it as well. But this is what's so shocking, so striking. Jesus doesn't perform any miracles on the cross. He was tempted to. He, he, was, he was mocked by, uh, by those who hated him. They said, if you're really the Messiah, that is, if you're really the Son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus stays there. He doesn't perform some great miracle. He doesn't do what would be some obvious act of power. There's nothing, it seems, that uh, would show that He is the Son of God in a really clear way like we might have expected. Instead, it's when the centurion sees the way Jesus died that he makes this confession. He sees the way Jesus died and he makes this confession. Jesus is the Son of God. The way he died revealed him to be the Son. Earlier, the Roman soldiers had mocked Jesus because he didn't look like a king. He seemed too weak, too powerless, too pathetic. But now that mockery gives way to confession. The centurion realizes only God 
could have done this. Only God could have died this way. Only God could have died this kind of death. Only a king could have laid down his life the way Jesus lays his life down here. This man, this centurion, recognizes Jesus' life was not taken from him. He gave it. They didn't take his life. He gave his life. He died not as a victim. He died voluntarily. He chose to breathe out his last. You and I can't do that. You can't just decide, oh, I think I'll breathe out my last. Jesus on the cross chose to breathe out his last. In fact, that's one of the things that's shocking. When Pilate hears that Jesus is dead already, people are surprised Jesus died so quickly. Well, it's because he chose his death. He laid down his life voluntarily. Had he wanted, he could have just hung on the cross alive forever. He had to choose to give his life up. It was clear from the way Jesus cried out with a loud voice and then breathed out his last that his life was not taken from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He laid it down in love. And the centurion recognizes this. He sees this. And he, he realizes this death is utterly unique. It's not like anything he's ever seen before. Now this man's a centurion. He's a seasoned, grizzled veteran of crucifixions. This centurion no doubt had seen countless crucifixions. He saw two others this very same day. He'd seen a lot of men hang on crosses and die, but he had never seen a man die this way. The centurion recognizes the Son of God on the cross. And so really the question here is, do you? <laughs> do you recognize this dying man as the glory of God? Do you recognize this man hanging on the tree as God's Son, as God's promised King as God in the flesh, giving Himself for you and for your salvation. Do you see God's glory as cruciform? Do you accept the redefinition of God and of kingship and of glory that the cross brings about? In light of the cross, we can never think of glory and power and rule and authority in the same way. Do you see Jesus as a king, but in a radically different way than any other king is king? Exercising his kingship in a radically different kind of way. See, however improbable, indeed however impossible it might seem, it is true. This poor Jewish man hanging naked on the cross is what it looks like to be God. That man hanging on a cross is the glory of God. He is God's son. He is God's glory. When Jesus dies, God shows his face. The cross tears the veil and opens the way into the most holy place. That he would confess Jesus as son of God is truly remarkable for this centurion. A truly remarkable confession for him to make. That title, Son of God, was usually reserved for Caesar. That was Caesar's title. In fact, it was Caesar's preferred title. Caesar was the Son of God. If you'd asked any Roman, especially any Roman soldier in that day, who is the Son of God? They would have said, oh, that's easy. Caesar is God's Son. Indeed, Roman coins, like the coins the Roman centurion would have been paid in, perhaps he even had a few of these in his pocket 
at that very moment. Roman coins had a portrait of Caesar with the motto, Son of God, around it. This centurion was bound to be loyal to Caesar as his king and as his emperor. And Caesar was thought to have divine powers and divine status. Caesar was the Son of God. But now, this centurion confesses Jesus as the Son of God. That is to say, this centurion recognizes in Jesus' death, put to death by Caesar, no less, by Caesar's power, by Caesar's forces. As Jesus is put to death by the power of Caesar, he recognizes this is one greater than Caesar. This is the true king, the true emperor. He realizes there's a new king, a greater king, who has just taken his throne. Of course, biblically, we'd also want to say this Son of God language echoes passages like Psalm 2, where it's used for God's king, God's Messiah, who will be the ruler of the nations, who will be the one in whom salvation is found, who will be the judge of the nations in the end. See, on the cross, as Jesus was dying, he cried out, Why? Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Now we have the answer. Jesus was excluded on the cross from fellowship with God so that those who had been excluded, so real outsiders like this Roman centurion, could be brought into fellowship with God. Jesus was separated in some way from God's love so this Roman centurion could know God's love and never be separated from it. It's also remarkable that whereas the Jewish people had the temple and had the scriptures, they had all the clues as it were, they did not recognize Jesus as the Son of God when He came. But this Gentile outsider does recognize him. He makes the confession that echoes the voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration. He makes the same declaration about Jesus the Father makes, only this time the voice comes from earth rather than heaven. And again, that's what Mark has been aiming at, that we would confess the same thing about Jesus that the Father says about Jesus. The temple had existed to keep people away from God, to keep them at a safe distance. But now Jesus' death has torn the veil. Jesus' death has made it safe for everyone to draw near, to enter the true most holy place through Him. Jesus' death has made God approachable. And not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles as well. In fact, this Gentile is the first to see into the most holy place. And that must mean that the whole temple system in Israel is now obsolete. It means the whole Jew-Gentile divide is over. Not only is the veil, the wall between God and man torn down in Jesus' death, but the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between different races and classes of people, is broken down in the same moment. And so now, not only can we have fellowship with God, but we can have fellowship with one another across these kinds of lines, like the Jew-Gentile divide, which divided the whole ancient world. Indeed, the tearing of the veil means the temple has been defiled. The whole temple system with its sacrifices and priesthood must now come to an end. It's being abandoned by God. Jesus was abandoned by God momentarily on the cross. The temple will be abandoned by God for good. 
And indeed it will be destroyed and it will be replaced by something better. The temple has become obsolete and within a generation, in 70 AD indeed, it is destroyed. It's so ironic. They had accused Jesus of saying that he will tear down this temple. That was the accusation that got Jesus on crucified. And of course it was false the way they meant it. But in the end it does indeed come to pass. Jesus does indeed destroy the temple. And it begins with the tearing of the veil. But if that temple is being dismantled, it can only mean a new and better temple is being created. And this is what Jesus has been doing all throughout His ministry. Jesus has been taking over functions that previously belonged to the temple. The temple was the place where you would go to get God's forgiveness. But Jesus goes around handing out forgiveness, as it were, declaring the forgiveness of people's sins right wherever He is, as if He's a mobile temple and can do what the sacrifices at the temple do with His own words. The temple is the place you would go for cleansing, but Jesus cleanses people of things like leprosy just with His touch and with His Word. The temple is the place you would go to have a meal with God, but Jesus goes around having kingdom meals, sacramental meals, sacrificial meals with people all over And now, with the veil torn, we can see why. Jesus is the true temple. The place of the temple gives way to the person of the temple. He is the fulfillment of that whole system. He is the walking embodiment of the whole Levitical system. He fulfills it and transforms it in Himself. It all pointed to Him. And now that He has come, that's like scaffolding that can be taken down so Jesus can stand as the true temple, the true dwelling place of God, the place where heaven and earth meet. What Jesus has done in His death on the cross is bring heaven and earth together. He has reconciled God and sinners. Because of Him, heaven and earth can be made one. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation at the end of it all. Heaven and earth coming together. It's what Colossians 1 talks about when it says that Christ has reconciled all things, whether things in heaven or things on earth, through His cross, through His blood shed at the cross. The tearing of the veil symbolizes what is happening in reality. The torn veil means we can now safely and confidently draw near to God. It means God's glory and God's gifts flow out to us. The torn veil means we can come in and God can come out. Let's talk about each of these as a way of wrapping this up. What does it mean for us to get to go inside the veil? One thing I want you to think about is how many hymns we sing in this church that talk about the veil. There's so many hymns that make reference to this, going inside the veil, what happens within the veil. And it really goes back to this passage in Mark 15. also goes to Hebrews 10, which we read this morning. Let me just show you what's in Hebrews 10. You can really think of the whole book of Hebrews as a commentary on this event of the tearing of the veil, but especially in chapter 10. And there we read, Let us boldly enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. See, the high priest would go in through a a dead way, really, through the sacrifice of an animal. A dead animal would give him that momentary access to the most holy place. And it would just be the earthly copy, of course, of the heavenly sanctuary. The most holy place we enter through Jesus is the true heavenly sanctuary. And it's not a dead, old way. It's a new and living way because Jesus lives and reigns and welcomes us in. 
The passage goes on, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled and our bodies washed. Uh, The reference there to washing, that's a reference to baptism. Because in baptism, we're united to Christ and made sharers in his priesthood. Just as heaven opened at Jesus' baptism, so heaven opens to us when we are baptized. And he goes on, he says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Okay, that's what we're doing here today. We're not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're gathering as God's people. We've gathered and we've entered the heavenly sanctuary. We've entered the heavenly sanctuary so we can receive God's gifts. What was hidden away in the most holy place? God's gifts of life and wisdom and glory. Entering through the torn veil means the treasury of heaven has been opened to us. Those gifts are now ours. The old covenant high priest could only go into the earthly tabernacle and he would go in in great fear. It was a fearful event. But we come into God's presence boldly with confidence because Jesus has blazed a trail for us. Now we can enter into the true heavenly sanctuary every Lord's Day, every Sunday, and indeed every time we pray, every time we worship God. And we can do so with confidence because Christ is our veil. And Christ has opened this new and living way for us. Christ is our veil. Christ is our access. So important to see. Christ has opened heaven. And he does it not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Jesus himself holds the door of heaven open for us to enter. We don't get to enter because of who we are or what we do, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. Reminds me of a story a friend told me. Of one time he was walking towards an office building. And when he got to the door, he noticed a woman was walking behind him. And so he held the door open for her to go in first. And she kind of scowled at him as he did so. And she said, I hope you're not doing this for me because I'm a lady. And he said, no, ma'am. I'm doing it because I'm a gentleman. Okay. That is what Jesus is doing. He's holding the door open for us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Not because we're so worthy, but because he's so gracious, because he is so compassionate. We can't bang down heaven's door. We can't force it open. We don't have the key to unlock it. It must be open for us. Jesus has done that. Jesus has opened heaven for us so we can behold the glory of God and receive his gifts. This is what Jesus has done for us. Now, some Christians don't take advantage of these great privileges they've been given. It's like they want to sew the torn curtain up and they just want to hang around in the courtyards and, 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 and God feels distant from them and they keep God at a distance. They don't enjoy the privileged access they've been given in Christ. Mark 15 and Hebrews 10 together say to us, enjoy drawing near. Enjoy communion with God. Enjoy the foretaste of God's glory He gives you now in the gatherings of His people. Enjoy this foretaste of heaven on earth. You are welcomed freely into the presence of God. And this is why worship and prayer are so powerfully transformative why we say again and again that worship and prayer change the world more so than politics or anything else you can do prayer and worship change the world this is why because we're in god's presence everything the israelites wanted and longed for is fulfilled and happening at the cross 
and because of the cross. They wanted the temple to be open. They wanted access to God's glory. They wanted access to God's gifts. They wanted God's kingdom to come. They wanted a Messiah to rule over all. But they couldn't recognize those things when they happened because they happened through the scandal of the cross. We've seen this again and again in Mark's Gospel. The Jews wanted a Gentile-like king who would lord it over his subjects. But it's actually a Gentile who recognizes true kingship, who recognizes the suffering one on the cross is the true king. He is the one who has opened heaven to us through his sacrificial service. Because of Jesus, we can come into the very presence of God. We're enjoying it right now. But the torn veil means not only that we can enter into heaven, it also means heavenly blessings flow out. We can go inside the veil and receive the gifts, but those gifts that are on the inside can also begin to flow out. When Ezekiel has his vision of the glorified temple, what happens? Living waters begin to flow out from the most holy place to flood the world with God's grace and God's peace and God's salvation. Blessings that flow out to the nations. And indeed, you see the first fruits of this with this Gentile centurion making his confession. He represents the nations, the nations that are going to come to Jesus and enter his new temple and be incorporated into his new temple. The original design of the temple, which Israel failed to realize, is that the temple would serve as a house of prayer for all nations. Israel continually frustrated that purpose, basically with what we could call her racism, her pride and her arrogance that pushed others away. But the temple of Jesus and his church is now to be that house of prayer for all nations. This new temple includes all people groups, and I think Mark even gives us a clue perhaps to how this is going to happen. Because he tells us that Jesus breathed out his last. I don't think that's just a way of telling us how Jesus died. When Jesus breathes out his last, what does he breathe out? Well, think about John's Gospel in John chapter 20 where Jesus breathes out on His disciples and He says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Breath of God. The Spirit proceeds from Jesus. The Spirit is, as it were, the breath of Jesus breathed upon His people. I think Mark is hinting at this same reality here. As Jesus dies, He breathes out His Holy Spirit. And it's this breathing out of the Holy Spirit that enables the centurion to make his confession. Just as in the creation account, God breathed His Spirit into Adam and made him a living being. So Jesus breathes out His Spirit on the centurion here. And He becomes a new Adam. The beginning of a new humanity. And so this man who had led his fellow soldiers in hitting and spitting on and mocking Jesus just hours before is now transformed by Jesus and submits to Jesus as King of kings and Lord of lords. He confesses Jesus as Son of God. He sees that Jesus has become the life-giving Spirit. The tearing of the veil shows us that the time for God's mission to the world is now. God's mission to the nations is happening now. God is coming out from the veil, pouring out His blessings. His blessings are flowing out from behind the veil to the nations. 
Just as Jesus' baptism, heaven was torn open so the Spirit could come down upon Him. So here the veil is torn open so the Spirit can flow out to the whole world. Heaven is coming to earth. And God wants us to be a part of it. The cross and the torn veil mean we are called to go out and meet people where they are with the gospel. Jesus was crucified in the public square, in a public place, by the powers that be, the powers in church and in state. He was crucified at the crossroads where passers-by would come by on their way into the city, where they jeered at Him on their way into the day's business in town. It was such a cosmopolitan place that the accusation inscribed above His cross said the King of the Jews in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. He was crucified between two thieves in a place where soldiers gamble and curse. He was crucified outside the city near its trash heap. The veil is ripped open so God's grace can flow out to those very kinds of places. So God's grace can flow out to the dark places, the broken places, the cursed places. Because Jesus was crucified in just such a place. Jesus was crucified in the midst of all that brokenness. And so now we are called as His servants, as His disciples, to take up our crosses and go to those same places, the dark places, the broken places, the cursed places. And we're called to care for the poor and to befriend the lonely and to minister to the sick. We're called to take the gospel to those who curse and those who jeer. We're called to love people of different skin colors and ethnicity. We're called to comfort the hurting and strengthen the weak. And when we serve in these ways, when we take up our crosses and go show this kind of sacrificial love, we are showing the world the face of God. We are unveiling God for all the world to see. When we serve in these ways, we are showing the world the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank You that You have revealed Your glory to us all, for all the world to see on the cross. We thank You that the torn veil means we can come into Your very heavenly presence. And it means all Your gifts, the gift of Your Spirit, the gifts of grace and compassion and mercy and wisdom and life can flow out for the healing and the redemption and the restoration of all the nations so that the whole world might be Your temple, that heaven and earth might be one. This we pray, giving you thanks for Christ Jesus and all he has done for us. Amen.